welcome to History's Greatest Screw-Ups, a pod about poor decisions, unfortunate mistakes, and bad luck in history. I'm your host, Carrie Clement, and I'm coming to you from the homelands of the Crow, Blackfeet, Cheyenne, Lakota, Dakota, Salish, Kootenai, and Shoshone, Bannock, Indigenous Nations. The unlawful removal and continued displacement of these and other nations enables the rest of us to live and work here. Today, we are speaking with Amanda Martin-Harden, a history PhD candidate at Columbia. Thank you for joining us. And we are going to be talking about the failed U.S. Camel Corps experiment in the 19th century. Just as a bit of a backstory, I have known Amanda through uh, our time together when we were both MA students at Montana State University. So it's a little bit like uh, returning back to storytelling mode with old friends a little bit. So I'm excited to talk about camels today, which is a phrase I never, ever expected to say in my life. But first things first, what are we drinking today? So in honor of the camels, we're going to have a prickly pear cactus margarita because camels can actually eat cacti with really big thorns. If you want to get into a great rabbit hole on YouTube, just Google (laughs) camel eating cactus video. (laughs) That is amazing. That's a rabbit hole I never would have thought to go down, but now I think I might just have to do that. (laughs) Highly recommend it. Okay, so we are drinking our prickly pear margaritas. Let's get started talking about camels in the American desert. Uh, I'm delighted to do that. And I do first want to give the disclaimer that I am neither an animal historian nor a military historian. (laughs) But this is sort of comes from my background being raised in Texas. I'd sort of heard of this story almost in like mythical ways. And so I wanted to get to the heart of the actual history behind the U.S. Camel Mm. Corps of the 1840s to the 60s-ish. This was never the official name. They were never actually known as the U.S. Camel Corps, but that's what they've come to be known as. And it's snappy. So we'll go with it. Works for me. Great. (laughs) So on its surface, it seems like a really silly story of like the U.S. Army getting in over their heads by obtaining these camels from overseas and shipping them back on this really laborious journey, only to end up inadvertently just kind of abandoning them and selling them off and creating this feral camel population in the West. But even though it's sort of this like amusing story, I think if you dig a little deeper, it's actually this really fascinating story about American imperialism and settler colonialism with the camels as our unlikely historical tour guides. So that's, Kind of how I'm thinking through it. I also think that we can learn some fun camel facts along the way. I am here for camel facts. (laughs) Should I start with rapid firing some camel facts just to get us started? Sure. (laughs) Okay. I typed these up, so I'm excited to share them. So first of all, there are two general types of camels. The one-humped dromedaries and the two-humped bactrians, which are actually endangered. There's only like... I think around 500 left in the wild or something like that of the two hump species. Camels were domesticated by humans around 3000 years ago and their median life expectancy in the wild is like 18 years, but they can live to be up to 40 years old, which is kind of crazy. Fun fact, since they evolved in these like desert ecosystems, they can completely Mm -hmm. shut their nostrils during sandstorms. And they have multiple eyelids and two rows of eyelashes to keep sand out of their eyes, which I just found really cool. That is really cool. I know, right? 
that I guess it, that explains their huge eyelashes, which is just fun to know. Oh. Yeah. Their humps can allow them to store up to 80 pounds of fat that they can live off of for weeks and even months, potentially, if they have to. And they, their humps actually droop when they don't have enough like nutrition and hydration. And they can go about like a week without water too, which is impressive. Yeah. And then get this, they can run up to 40 miles per hour and like sprints, which is insane. <laughs> That's really fast. I kind of knew they were really fast, but I don't think I'd ever heard a full number on it. That's incredible. There's a lot of like, apparently a lot of Arab cultures do camel racing and you can like some of the races, the the winner's pot will be like a million dollars. So it's no joke. These camel races. I have read a bit about those, those races. Um, I just didn't know camels could run that fast sprinting. I know it's shocking. It's shocking. Uh, What other camel facts do you have for us? They can communicate to each other through different sounds and they blow on each other's faces as a friendly greeting. Yeah. So I guess if a camel blows on your face, take it as a compliment. That's all I have in, in terms of camel facts. That sets the stage for like how interesting of a creature they are. So what's the context to bringing these really complex creatures to the United States in the 19th century? Totally. So by the 1830s and 40s, as you know, many historians have commented on, Americans are expanding across the continent in the Western direction a lot more aggressively by this point. And you can pinpoint a few things just to kind of like that are indicative of that. Thinking about Andrew Johnson's Indian Removal Act in 1830, Mm -hmm. or slavery expanding more into the Southeast at this point, or of course, the Mexican-American War, which was this very imperial Mm -hmm. conflict. Obviously, too, this the backdrop of just exacerbating violence against indigenous people in the West throughout these American expansion efforts. So as American military projects are expanding West, they're encountering these more arid environments in the Southwest. So they start to think about the deserts as a real obstacle that they need to figure out and overcome. And this one guy, he was an army lieutenant named George H. Crossman, came up with this idea in 1836. And at the time, people thought he was pretty ridiculous. And I don't know if he ever got a ton of people on board with his idea, but it started in 1836. And he said, we should import camels to the US because they'll be more adept to these desert environments than mules or horses. So he didn't gain much traction originally. And the idea didn't really take off till like 1847. So that's like nine years later. (laughs) And he hooked up with this guy named Major Henry Wayne. They sent a report to the War Department in Congress and they recommended that the US government should import camels. And here's where it gets a little interesting. Oh, here's where it gets interesting. (laughs) They caught the attention of Mississippi Senator Jefferson Davis. And spoiler alert, he later became the Confederate president. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So that happens. But he was really into the camel idea. Davis worked for several years to get funding for the camels as well, but to no avail. So why, if I can interject? Totally. How did Crossman and then Davis... Or I guess maybe this question is more for Crossman. How did he even have experience with camels to think, oh, maybe I should import them? Or was this sort of like, I read something in a magazine once and think this, well, let's give it a shot. So it seems like Crossman and some of his colleagues were really looking towards like Britain and France and some of their imperial projects. And they 
France and Britain was using camels. Like Britain used them in the Crimean War. France used them in Algeria. And so I think American military mm-hmm. personnel were just studying up on different projects and thinking like, oh, this is how they in- encountered these desertous landscapes. Why can't we just import that to the U.S.? So it was this very like international mm-hmm. intelligence. Huh. Yeah. It's interesting that they were essentially trying to learn, copy, adapt strategies that other very famously imperialistic nations were using. And then to do it in the form of animal labor, to me, is really interesting. Okay, so anyway, thanks for answering that question. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think it's a really insightful question. Because I think a lot of Americans in general, and, and one of the things I find this topic so intriguing is Americans often struggle to think of the US as imperial. And so seeing it in this really like this really granular experience, I think really illustrates the extent that it was right. Yeah. So yeah, back to Davis. So in 1853, Davis was appointed Secretary of War. So he's got a little more clout. He's got like a little more power now. And he still is very invested in the camel project. And he has more sway. So he actually tacked camel funding to this like appropriation bill in 1853 and managed to get away with it. So he got $30,000 for camels for military use, which sounds like a lot and it is a lot, but for military budgets, it's, it's like not that much. It's not insignificant, but I think, I think like a tank might cost more, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, there's that, that he thought that these animals had enough military value to invest that much money in them. Um, it wasn't just this in yeah, he, to him. Absolutely. It wasn't just this air harebrained scheme. Totally. So he, he sees this as, as like a worthwhile project. Absolutely. And he sends with, with the budget major Wayne abroad to go obtain the camels. And this is like no small feat because they have to sail to the Mediterranean, they go to like Egypt, they go to Tunisia, they go to all these, I think they go to Greece, mm. they go to the Ottoman Empire, they go to all these places and obtain camels from lots of different locations. And then they have to figure out how to ship them back. And they hire actually caretakers from some of these like localities that have expertise in camels, because a lot of Americans don't know what to do with camels. And they also had to like construct what they called camel cars in these ships. So it was like these hatches and stable areas for the camels. They had to use hoists and swings to load them onto the ships in some places. So it was a complicated project, but they they made it successfully. And they brought mm. back 33 camels. I think a couple died and like a few were born en route because it, it was overall, it was um, a three month sea voyage. So they came out with the camels being pretty healthy. So they arrived on the Texas coast around, I think it was 1856 that they actually landed in Texas. So I guess it took a few years to like make everything happen. They gave the camels some time to rest after their sea voyage. And then they did a 120 mile march to San Antonio and ended up in the Texas Hill Country. And they actually ended up in this place called, I know this is a really bad anglicized pronunciation but this is what people in texas called it's called camp verde texas camp verde and the camel corps would remain there for many years (laughs) so that's where they ended up so we have this fleet of texas camels now basically the main objective of the camels if i hadn't made this clear yet is it's like an experiment to determine whether or not the military should even use camels 
So they're mm-hmm. not fully on board with the military's using camels. It's it's sort of a trial to see if the military can viably use them. Mm-hmm. So Davis starts calling for these field tests. And the first one, they are basically like mules versus camels. Who's better <laughs> at carrying stuff? Okay. They came up with these two teams and it was like, two wagons with six mules per wagon and that was one team team mule and then there was team camel that was just six camels so team mule and they have the same task they're all setting out to san antonio to pick up a supply of oats so they go to san antonio Hmm. i think it's like oh i don't know it's like around 100 miles or something like that it's not like a crazy distance maybe less but it's it's not a huge trek they're just kind of comparing them and the mules They go to San Antonio, they pick up their oats, and they come back round trip. It took them five days to carry 1,800 pounds of oats. And then the camels, same trip, same amount of oats, or excuse me, more oats. It took them two days Mm. to carry 3,648 oats. So Team Camel won in the showdown. And Davis was very pleased. I'm just processing this. So mules had wagons and the camels were just essentially like loaded up like with packs. Yeah, I I haven't researched this too much, but it doesn't seem like camels are adept for pulling things. It seems like you just have to like pack them down. So yeah, Mm. they would just pack down each camel. And I think each camel can carry like several hundred pounds of cargo. Oh, So Team Mule lost and Team Camel won. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, check. The camels passed their first like mini test. And this is, I just want to intervene for a second on a soapbox for camels, because I feel like camels get a really bad rap. I'll clarify and say in the US, at least in my experience, people have this idea of camels as being really mean, and they like spit and they're stubborn, and they're sort of unpleasant animals. I think they have this stereotype, but they're actually apparently quite docile and like work well with humans. I mean, that sounds like mules. Mules have a stereotype of being stubborn and headstrong and et cetera, et cetera, which sometimes they can and will do be that way and and will act that way. But there's also some mules that are just sweethearts and are the most friendly, great animals. So... I think that's a really great point. Thanks for bringing that up in terms of like how we even just assign certain species these negative or positive ideas about their temperaments when in fact it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, which is a really interesting point for camels. And and maybe I should come back to this. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. But I wonder if there was a cultural element too to why a lot of people thought this was such a goofy idea almost like xenophobic undertones because people associated camels with Arab nations and thought they were just these weird foreign creatures. And I wonder if that had to do anything with the sort of reticence of Congress to think about camels as as good sort of military animals. Food for thought, that's just a theory. I haven't found any evidence to support it. It makes sense to me. (laughs) So team camel and team horse go head to head and... Or Team Mule, excuse me, Team Mule loses. Team Mule loses. And so the army is sort of like, okay, check, they passed this small test, and now let's put them to a bigger test. So fast forward a little bit, it's 1857, 
And the army is thinking about creating a road from like New Mexico to sort of the California, Arizona border. For this road surveying expedition, they say, okay, let's take the camels to sort of traverse the Southwest desert while we're doing this. So it's a four month expedition. It's about 1200 miles. And they put this fellow named Edward Beale in charge. And speaking of sort of like the very explicit settler colonial overtones of the Camel Corps, he used to be the superintendent of Indian Affairs. So now he's put in in charge of road surveys. So he's given the charge of like, you must take camels on your road surveying expedition. And at first, he's very upset about this. He he really bristles. He doesn't like camels. He thinks this is ridiculous. He doesn't know how to take care of them. He doesn't want them on his trip. But the government has already sunk money into this. So they're like, Beale, you're using the camels. So he's like, okay, I'm using the camels. So at first, like I said, he was pretty incensed. But then after two weeks with the camels, he started singing their praises. He really came around. And I have this little quote to read you. So he said... Sometimes we forget they are with us. Certainly, there never was anything so patient or enduring and so little troublesome as this noble animal. They pack their heavy load of corn, of which they never taste a grain, put up with any food offered them without complaint, and are always up with the wagons, and withal so perfectly docile and quiet that they are the admiration of the whole camp. At this time, there is not a man in camp who is not delighted with them. They are better today than when we left Camp Verde with them especially since our men have learned by experience the best mode of packing them. So Beale is convert. He's converted. He's a camel fan. It's almost like he's doting on them. Like he finds them so charming, which I found a little bit surprising. You know, he admired how they were able to like eat the plants um, around them, the prickly pants and the scrub brush along the way. And hence the prickly pear cactus margarita. They could go like 30 to 40 miles a day. They could go eight to 10 days without water. They were not bothered by the climate. And there was a lot of misconceptions at the time that camels couldn't swim, but they're actually great swimmers and they can swim even with like cargo. And there was apparently one instance in this expedition where they were crossing a river and all but two horses and like a handful of mules drowned, but the camels swam across and the other thing that's interesting is camels don't need horseshoes because they just evolved to, yeah. you know, cross the desert. So lots of interesting points about huh. the camel. And there was another weird story where, like, the expedition got lost at one point and they had to go 36 hours without finding water or a lot of grass. And understandably, the poor mules were, like, freaking out. But the camels were just chilling. And then they actually went on a scouting party with camels and they were able to locate water fairly quickly so it's it's an interesting thing and it's i never want to endorse an idea of jefferson davis so i want to be clear that i'm not endorsing a jefferson davis idea at all but the idea of thinking environmentally and like animals that are suited for certain environments was pretty Mm -hmm. interesting so Mm. so yeah they made it successfully to the end of the journey everyone was really happy with the camels but congress still wasn't really buying it. So that's sort Hmm. of the point at which it's like, this little expedition might have really fond feelings for these animals, but over in DC, Congress is not, is not catching the camel craze. The camel craze. (laughs) (laughs) Another phrase I did not expect to hear is catching the camel craze. (laughs) I know. I can't, I can't help myself. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) 
So Congress isn't catching the camel craze. Yeah. And we have to remember, this is getting late into the 1850s. So by the time this expedition's over, Congress is feeling pretty consumed by the impending conflict that we know now would lead into the Civil War. And by 1860, really, too, they just did not have the bandwidth for camels. But apparently there was also a mule lobby that didn't like the camels for economic reasons. So that is a thing that happened. And I think finally, my guess too, is that like, by the time the Civil War is over, railroads are making such an inroads that like camels feel kind of obsolete in terms of transportation. So, oh, interesting. So that's what happens with the camels. But there's still the pack of camels that made it to California, right? So what becomes of them? Good question. Yeah. Which will be answered in part two. You don't want to miss the rest of the story about these camels. Thank you for joining us today. You can find more about Amanda Harden's work at amandaharden.com. For more information about this pod, you can go to historiesgreatestscrewups.com or follow us on Twitter at hscrewups. History's Greatest Screw-Ups pod is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Carrie Clement. Music is by Scott Holmes. Please remember to smash that subscribe button, rate and review the pod, and share with your friends. Join us next time for tales about poor decisions, unfortunate mistakes, and bad luck in history. Until then, be good people and make good choices so you don't end up on this pod.